Good evening, everybody. It is great to have you here on this night. It's a night that uh, we do church a little different. Uh, you notice you walked into a dark room. It's because we call this day Good Friday, but the result of it was good, but the day itself was not. Because it was on this day that God appointed for his son to pay for our sins. It was a horrible death, made inexplicably worse by the presence of all of humanity's sins on his soul. It tells us that as Jesus died, the, the lights went out. The whole earth became dark. dark day, but a day worthy of our remembrance, a day that leads to the greatest day, a day we'll celebrate over the next couple days, the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But before the resurrection, you got to go through the death. Before you can experience life, you got to understand the death. So tonight, I'm going to ask you to do something that may not be your norm here at church. Tonight, we're going to keep it low. Tonight we're going to allow our hearts to meditate on the truth that is the sacrifice of our Savior Jesus Christ. We want to leave here tonight grateful for all that Jesus has done for us. We want to spend our time together tonight celebrating as we reflect his willingness to die in our place. I'm going to open in prayer. I'm going to just kind of be quiet for a second. Maybe as you're getting here, you're coming from work or wherever you've come from, and I just want to give you a second to kind of arrive. Center your hearts on what we're going to be doing. We're going to be singing and speaking and, and listening and, and then moving from this place, hopefully, into a life that's full of gratitude for all that Jesus has done for us. Let's talk to our God now. Father, we stand, or I stand, on this place uh, before my family. It's our church. Uh, many of us, I'd, I'd guess most of us, having received you as our Savior, that was only possible because your Son chose uh, to obey you and to submit to you in dying for us and standing in our place so that we could have life through him. Uh, we want to re reflect on that and, and remember that in honoring ways tonight, God. We want to just kind of give you the space to work in our hearts. So I'm going to be quiet right now in this prayer and just let you speak to us before I say amen. God, may you receive the glory. for what you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his matchless name. The name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with us?
John 19, 16 through 18 says this. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic means Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on other side and Jesus in between them. You may be seated. In 1981, PBS released a documentary called The Christians. It was a documentary that was meant to showcase uh, and give voice to the diversity of expressions of the Christian faith throughout the world. And there was a moment in this documentary where the narrator said this, Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central tenet the degradation and humiliation of its God. Tonight, on this Good Friday, we gather together to mark the degradation and humiliation and execution of God the Son incarnate in Christ Jesus. For many of us, the temptation would be to think that the greatest evil, the greatest tragedy that occurs on Good Friday is simply that Jesus died. It's the death itself, and there is certainly profound weight to that death. Fleming Rutledge, an Episcopal priest in her book, The Crucifixion, says that for early Christians, just as scandalous as the death of Jesus was the way in which he died, the location in which he died. It wasn't simply that he died, it was how and where this took place. In the text that Corey read for us, we're told that Pilate delivered Jesus over to be crucified. He was led out to a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And we together will linger on the magnitude of the cross, the fact that Jesus was crucified out of all ways that he could have been killed. But here at the beginning of our time together, I want to draw your attention to something that you might have missed, namely that after Pilate delivered Jesus over, he is led out. John's gospel is not the only one to document this. It's mentioned also in Matthew and in the gospel of Mark. Scholars have long noted that this isn't some sort of a passing reference for Jesus simply being led out of whatever cell he was being kept in or outside of the house of Pontius Pilate. There's greater weight behind this statement, Jesus is led out. Roman law required that if somebody was to be executed, they must be led outside of the city into the desert, into the wilderness to be put to death. Jewish law and custom required something very similar. For your sins against the state, your sins against God or the gods, whatever your crimes might be, if they are deserving of death, you will not die in our city walls. You will be led out from us into the wilderness, and there you will die. The wilderness in Jesus' day was seen as a place where the forces of darkness were particularly prevalent and powerful, where Satan and demons prowled like lions to devour. So this, then, is happening to the Son of God. He is being led out from the city of God into the darkness of the wider world to be crucified. These, these Roman and Jewish laws, they're only putting to parchment what seems to be woven into the fabric of our very existence. This profound and inescapable reality, it seems, that sin, when it enters into life and relationships, separates, isolates, and segregates. 
It separates man from his brother. It separates creation from its creator. This pattern bears itself out throughout the pages of Scripture. When Adam and Eve introduce sin into the human race, the first thing they do is realize they're naked and try to cover themselves in fig leaves to separate themselves one from another. The next thing that happens is God pronounces judgment on Adam and Eve's sin is that he casts them outside of the walls of the Garden of Eden into the wilderness where they will face death. The book of Deuteronomy, we're told as Israel wanders throughout the wilderness, that if anybody in the camp of Israel commits some sort of a sin that incurs the judgment of God, they are to be put outside of the camp until they are either clean or face death. Perhaps the greatest image of this separation that we see is in the book of Leviticus when instructions are given for the Day of Atonement, the one day a year where the sins of Israel are atoned for by the priests. It is this blanket offering, and there are two goats that are sacrificed. One of them is killed inside the city walls and offered to God, but the other goat, the priest lays his hands on, symbolically transferring the sins of the people of Israel to this animal. And then that animal is led outside of the city into the wilderness to die. Sin separates. Sin isolates. Sin segregates. No doubt in your own life, you've perhaps experienced this. A marriage that has been corrupted by sin and come apart. The great separation that's caused by our unfaithfulness. A friendship that through slander or gossip or abuse has dissolved and withered under the weight of that sin. A family that has come apart because of the sins of the father, the mother, the children, the grandchildren. Separating, isolating, segregating. Maybe right now you're in this room tonight. And there is some secret sin in your life that you carry with you like a lead weight. And even now, you are surrounded by people, yet you feel alone and outside of the city. At a distance from your creator and from those who are around you. The good news of the gospel, then, is that Jesus does not simply bear our judgment in the wrath of God, though he certainly does, and we'll discuss that this evening. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is not simply crucified, but he is led into the outer darkness to be crucified. He bears not just the wrath of God on our sin, but he bears our loneliness and isolation that we have warranted through our sin. The good news of Christ is this, that Christ Jesus is led outside of the city of God and there crucified so that by his cross, you and I might be brought back from the outer darkness and the wilderness of this world into the city of God. Would you pray with me as we continue in worship? Righteous Father, you would be right in crushing us with judgment, leaving us in the loneliness and isolation that our sin warrants in the outer darkness. And yet Christ has gone to this place on our behalf so that we might take a seat at the table in the kingdom. Would you stir our hearts towards gratitude as we continue to reflect on all of the facets and power of the cross of Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Just stand with us again. What a grace it is 
that we might be led back into the city, back into the city of God. So we're going to sing Amazing Grace.
2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You may be seated. Truly is a day like no other. In our faith, there's nothing like this day. It's the penultimate event, the next to greatest event of our entire belief, because without the death of Christ, there cannot be the resurrection of Christ. But Christ came so that you and I wouldn't have to suffer that death. He took it upon himself and became our substitute. Those verses that Corey read are some of my favorite in Scripture. The first one might have been a familiar one to you because Paul tells the Corinthians that for our sake, he made him, he being God and him being Jesus, to be sin. Who knew no sin? Jesus had lived a perfect life. He did this so that in him, Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Paul's explaining to the Corinthians and to us that our righteousness comes not from our efforts. There's no amount of doing that you and I can do that would ever satisfy, earn us the right to be reconciled to God. No, our righteousness comes from the goodness and grace of God the Father through our son Jesus, his son Jesus Christ. And God, he he did this because he couldn't just wipe the slate clean. It's not like he could just say, okay, everything's fine, because that would violate one side of his person. He's a just God. And so from the beginning of sin, there was a price for sin. It was death, as Travis told us, the separation, the segregation that comes as a result of sin. Someone has to bridge that gap. Someone has to pay the price for our sins. And so for our sake, Paul tells the Corinthians, the Father put all of our sins upon the Son, poured out all of his wrath on him instead of us. That second verse that Corey read goes on to clarify a little bit more of this idea. As Peter wrote in his first letter, chapter 2, verse 24, he said, He, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that you and I, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It says, by his wounds you have been healed. He's he's essentially quoting Isaiah 53, which I'm going to get to in just a second. Let's start with these two parallels, these two contrasts that Peter gives us in this verse. He says, first of all, that Jesus bore our sins on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Did you know that you and I are born, spiritually speaking, dead to righteousness and alive to sin. The Bible says that you and I are in Adam, and that since Adam, every human has been born incapable of overcoming the problem of sin. We are, in and of ourselves, dead to righteousness, 
alive to sin. When it says we're alive to sin, we're prone to wander. We are capable of some of the worst stuff. They blaze it across the headlines of our websites and newspapers. Uh, but we know our sin. We know what we personally are capable of. We recognize that there's wickedness that's in us, even if we don't try. We're also born to the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin, as Romans tells us, is death. The wages of sin is death. And this separation is just there because we are an Adam. That being alive to sin makes us dead to righteousness. No matter how hard we try, we still mess up. Anybody notice that? In and of ourselves, we're just bound to fail. But here's the good news. For those of us who have put our faith in Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross, his work on the cross has made us dead to sin and alive to righteousness. We are no longer under the power of sin if we are in Christ. We are freed from that bond, loose from that prison. As I told you this past week at church, everything that we need to live the Christ life is in us because Christ is in us. And Christ is able through us to accomplish his will. You and I do not have to sin because Christ has freed us. We are dead to sin. We are dead to the penalty of sin if we are in Christ. Eternally, we are secure and given life forever because Jesus bore our sins on the cross. We're alive to righteousness. We're, we're capable, not in and of ourselves, but because Christ in us, we are capable of doing everything he's called us to. The second contrast there in that verse uh, talks about the wounds and the healing. It says, by his wounds we are healed. The closest I could get to that in our world is, is like a transplant surgery. Someone goes into the hospital, they find out that their kidneys are failing. They're going to need another one. Science and doctors and God's grace have shown us that we can actually take one from you and put it in you. And so these two people will go into the hospital. They'll both have surgery. They'll get cut open. One will have a, a kidney removed, and the other one will receive it. But both have to recover. The sacrifice is made by the one. The price is paid by the one so that the life of the other can go on. Now, this is the best I could do in our world. <laughs> But it pales in comparison, times infinity, with what Jesus has done for us. His wounds have made us spiritually well. You and I have been the benefactors of all that Jesus sacrificed on our behalf. Let's start at the incarnation. God left heaven. The Son of God left heaven and put on human form so that he could become this perfect sacrifice for us. He lived a perfect life, and he put up with all of us at that time. <laughs> Can you imagine being the creator and hanging around with your createds? I mean, having to put up with all the stuff that he had to put up with? Certainly when it came time for his betrayal, it was by someone that he'd spent the last three and a half years of his life pouring into. That was Judas when he came and gave him the kiss. He was maligned, abused, physically, verbally, falsely accused and wrongly convicted, beaten, whipped to within an inch of his life, 
He was humiliated. And then he was nailed to a cross. And the worst part of the cross wasn't the physical part, which was horrible. The worst part of the cross was the sin part. Because there on that tree, dying in humiliation, the creator of all things, the one who holds all things together, the son of God, took upon himself the sins of the world. Words can't contain the angst of that. Peter talks about those wounds healing us. it's, It's almost word for word lifted from the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 53 where it says this, he, uh, we understand that now to be Jesus, was despised and he was rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and he was acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. Jesus came to do all this stuff and people still believe in him not. But Isaiah goes on and he writes this. He says, but we know, my words, that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sins. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. We sit here tonight, participants, many of us, I know, in this amazing grace that cost our Savior so much. My prayer is that we would remember and reflect on all that Jesus has given us. He suffered where we should have. He died so that you and I didn't have to. Isaiah tells us that he was smitten, he was afflicted, he was pierced and crushed, that Jesus endured an agony that, again, no words can contain so that you and I could be reconciled to God through him. The term they taught us in seminary for this is called the substitutionary atonement. Substitute, obviously, is a stand-in. That's what Jesus is for us when it comes to the death that we deserve. But atonement is this picture of making things that were wrong right. And when you think of the cross, I want you to think of atonement. Because Jesus did for you and I what we could never do for ourselves. He took what was wrong, sin, and through his sacrifice made it possible for it to be right. We sing a song around here, we're going to sing it in just a second, called Lamb of God. I think the chorus goes something like this, uh, Lamb of God, in my place, uh, his blood poured out, my sins erased, it was uh, my death that he died, I am raised to life, hallelujah, the Lamb of God. We were talking this week, Travis and I, in preparation for this, and it reminded us of the story of Abraham and Isaac, in Genesis 22, I was privileged to study that with my life group a couple years ago, and it's still fresh in my heart as I think about the crucifixion. And the parallels are, I think, pretty obvious. Abraham waited for 100 years to have a son, finally had one, and one day God comes to him and says, hey, I want you to take your only son, your only, it's like you almost said this, your only begotten son, and I want you to sacrifice him. I want you to sacrifice him for me. So Abraham goes to his son and he says, hey, we've got to go make a sacrifice. Let's get everything together. It tells us there uh, in one of the verses that Isaac uh, took all the wood that would be used for the sacrifice and he threw it on his back. Many scholars picture that as the same uh, as Jesus carrying the cross on his shoulder to his death. They took a servant with him to carry the extra stuff and when it came time to go up the last piece of hill so that Abraham could obey God in sacrificing his only son, 
He turned to the servant. He says, we'll be right back. We're coming back. Abraham was certain that this God who had promised him a son and descendants, he was going to figure out a way to where even if he obeyed and plunged a knife into his son's chest, the father would redeem him. So they walked up. The most interesting part of the whole story is it said that Isaac was bound. Now let's remember, Abraham's like 110, 115, 120 years old by this time. Um, low T, are you with me? Now, there's no way that he could possibly bind a teenage son without his son saying, okay, Dad. Okay. Isaac was willing. Abraham was willing. The knife was over the son's chest and an angel comes to Abraham and he says, okay, I know. The father knows now that you believe. And then, second favorite part. He pointed over to a, uh, a bunch of bushes and there in the bush was a ram. Probably the bushes were thorny. Most of the bushes in Israel are. So here's this ram or lamb caught in thorns would stand in for the sacrifice of the human son. I don't know about you. I am grateful to a God who has loved you and I enough that even though we deserve to die, he sent us his lamb. Will you pray with me and thanks to him for that? Let's pray. God, we, uh, we are so undeserving of your grace and love and mercy and you pour it out in lavish and amazing ways. Thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for the work of Jesus on the cross, the fact that uh, he stood in our place so that we might be atoned to you. Thanks for healing us with his wounds. Thanks for taking us uh, from being dead to righteousness and alive to sin to being alive to righteousness and dead to sin through our faith in what Jesus did on the cross. He was our lamb in our place. We worship you now and give thanks. Amen. Just stand with us. God. 
27, verse 50 and 51 says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and rocks were split. Amen. Please be seated. Sometimes when scientists, researchers are looking for patterns in sets of data. They're required to take a step further back. If your sample size is too small, you may not miss a pattern that would be obvious if you were to open the lens of your telescope a bit wider, to see a bit more, to to feel the full sweep of the data that you're examining. I wonder sometimes if it's not the same for us with the scriptures. So often we read such small, myopic portions of Scripture that we fail to see these grand patterns that emerge when we behold the full sweep of Scripture. Peter Lightheart is a Presbyterian theologian. He says that one of the grand patterns that we see in Scripture is God in his wisdom tearing apart two things that they might be united together again in redemption. And as you consider the the storyline of the scriptures, this pattern fits pretty well. 
Heaven and earth are mentioned again and again and again in Scripture. And yet God creates them separate, but they are joined together in the return of Christ. Adam has Eve torn from his side, and yet they are meant to be knit together as one flesh. Abraham is torn out of the nations, humanity torn in two, so that there are now two people groups. There are Jew and Gentile. But God's intention is that after this tear has been made, that they would be united together again in a new humanity. Israel, in Solomon's sin, is torn apart. All of the tribes but one leaving the house of David. And yet God's intention after this tear is that there would be a reunion in their return from exile, torn and mended, torn and mended, torn and mended for the purposes of redemption. There are two great tears in Matthew 27, the text that Corey read for us. The first of which, if you've grown up in church, you're likely familiar with. At the death of Jesus, the piece of fabric that separated the Holy of Holies, the place where the presence of God resided in the temple, that segregated humanity from the presence of its creator, that which was lost in the fall, is torn in two, and there is a mending that happens even in that rip. The separation between God and man has come to an end. But there's another tear. There's another tear that has to take place. Matthew tells us, that Jesus cried out in a loud voice, and with that he breathed his last and yielded up his spirit. John tells us what it is that Jesus cried out in this loud voice before he yielded his spirit. It is finished. And so often we take this statement from our Lord as meaning that the entirety of the work of redemption and atonement has been accomplished in that moment. But what I think is actually being said by Christ here is that his sufferings on the cross have come to an end. There's still more that must be done for the sake of our redemption. We're told that Jesus said, it is finished, and with that comes the final tear. He yields up his spirit, soul torn from body. I mentioned several weeks ago uh, that I had to put my cat down recently, which is a profoundly insignificant event in the cosmic scheme of reality. But it did give me the opportunity to reflect on just the nature of death in a, in a small way. As I was sitting in this vet's office, kind of just looking at the floor, thinking about how from morning to evening things had shifted in my life, I said something without thinking. I said to myself, death is an enemy. Death is not a thing to be celebrated. It's not a thing to be coddled. It's not a thing to be embraced. It's not a, a thing to come to terms with. It is unnatural. It is not how things are supposed to be. Death is an enemy. That is how the Bible describes it, not as an old friend. And as I reflected on that this week, what is the greatest evil of death? If death is an enemy that must be overcome, what is the greatest evil of death? Is it that that familiar heartbeat that you shared a bed with beats no longer? Is it that the voice on the other end of the telephone that once comforted you in your affliction will never be on the other end of the line again? All of these things are no doubt part of the evil of death. But I've been to an awful lot of open casket funerals in my day. 
And there's a pattern that has emerged without fail that I think lays its finger to the pulse of what is truly the most horrific, the most evil thing about death. Because without fail, at every open casket funeral, there comes a moment where a father, a mother, a sister, a brother, a husband, a wife, a grandfather, a grandmother, a son, a daughter, looks at the body of this person that they have traversed this world with for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years. And they say, that doesn't look like them anymore. That's not them anymore. They're not there anymore. Soul torn from body. And I wonder if you've considered, when Jesus says it is finished and he gives up his spirit, there is a moment that transpires when Mary, his mother, and John the apostle who stood at the foot of his cross watch They've watched the beatings, they've watched the flogging, they've watched the crucifixion, but there is a moment where they look at that body of the child that they bore in their womb, the child that they walked with, that they heard teach, that they shared the Passover with, and they say, he's gone. He's not there anymore. The final tear. The spirit of Jesus torn from his body as he encounters now the great evil of death, the enemy to be overcome. You know, we call today Good Friday. It is only good if there is an Easter Sunday. There is very little good about today if our faith is simply in the cross without an empty tomb. Because all that the cross says for us if there is no empty tomb is that that terrible rending of soul from body, that last great tear that Jesus encounters is what awaits all of us and there is no hope of return. But the the grace of God, the wisdom of God, the pattern throughout scripture holds true that God tears two things apart that they might be united together again. That the spirit that knit Jesus' soul and body together in the womb of the Virgin now, and the Virgin Mary now reunites the body and soul of Jesus in the womb of the earth in the tomb. That where Mary and John once said, he's not there, as they looked at the bloody cross, the angel now points to the empty tomb and says, he is not here anymore. He is risen. What was torn apart, united together again. And that is the Christian hope. Not I'll fly away, O glory, but as Christ is now, so too shall we be. That that awful tear, the sting of death, has been mended in the body of Jesus, raised to newness of life, and so too shall it be for the dead in Christ. But tonight, we mark the death of Christ, the cross the tearing of soul from body, not just flesh from bone. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, gave us one of the two great signs and sacraments of our faith. We call this the Lord's Supper, where he took bread and he took wine. He held it out and said, this is my body, torn for you, broken for you, that you might be made whole in this great tear that I will endure. This is my blood poured out for you new covenant in my blood. And so we, 
as the people of Jesus now together come to the table of the Lord. We as the people of Jesus now come to the body and blood marked out for us in bread and wine. As the ushers come forward and prepare to offer you the elements, here's what I want to ask you to do because there is profound weight to this moment. It's not just because the lights are a little dim. It's not just because we've had an evening of of emotional conversation around the cross. There is weight to this event that Paul cautions the Corinthians in. That to do this in an unworthy manner is to eat and drink judgment upon yourself. And so I want to invite you now in these next few moments to examine your heart, to reflect on Christ torn in two for you, not just flesh from bone, but body from soul, torn for you so that you might be made whole. Repent of your sins. Confess them to the Lord, knowing that he is faithful to forgive, and the cross is the surest sign of it. And hold on to the elements as we worship together. I'll lead us in communion in a few moments.
is the power of Christ in me from lies prescribed shift happened 500 years during the Protestant Reformation. See, up until this event had occurred, when the Lord's Supper was celebrated, the priest would take the elements and he would turn and he would offer them up to God as a sacrifice again for the congregation. But Protestants recognized as they recovered justification by faith alone that that sacrifice to God had been made once for all in Christ, on the cross. And so Protestants made a shift. Instead of offering these elements to God anew, they instead turned to the congregation and they held them out and said, this is the gift of God for the people of God. This is Christ's gift to you, his body broken, his blood shed, his spirit torn, led outside of the city to bear your loneliness in place as your substitute on the cross and raised for your justification. So I say this now to you, brothers and sisters, on the night when the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after having given thanks, he tore it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In like manner, after supper, he took the cup, he said, this is my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul says that whenever you eat of this bread and you drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Would you pray with me? Righteous Father, 
You've demonstrated on the cross both your mercy and your justice, your kindness and your severity, your wrath and your deep and abiding love for us. We thank you that for us and for our salvation, Christ was made man, crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. We thank you that that was not the only thing that Christ accomplished for our salvation, but that he was raised. God, I pray that as we, as brothers and sisters, go out into this room, that you have met us by your spirit through your word, that you have met us by the spirit here over bread and wine, and that we would continue to reflect on the inexhaustible riches of the cross of Christ. We ask all of this in Jesus' matchless name. A day unlike any other, a day where we who have been blessed by the grace of God to know him through Christ can pause to reflect on the cost of this faith that we have. Some of you may want to stick around for a little while, just pray, just reflect. Some of you, maybe time to go, but we'd ask that you'd leave tonight in silence mindful, respectful of the one who gave his life so that we might live. God bless you. Come to the party that will be Easter. Let's celebrate his resurrection together. Go in peace and in silence.